This Jewish History Podcast has two sponsors. It was sponsored anonymously in loving memory of Soraya Nasimian and by Joe Grob in the Zchut, in the merit of the Rafu Shalema, of the complete and total and swift recovery of Tzivya Shoshana Chaya Bat Miriam. Tonight's subject is part two of our retelling of the story of Joshua. Joshua and the conquest of Canaan. In effect, we're going to try to cover the entirety of the book of Joshua. After Moses died on the seventh day of Adar, the people mourned him for 30 days, and the book of Joshua begins on the seventh day of Nisan, exactly a month after Moses' passing. And in general, succession is always a naughty process. When you pass on from one leader to the next, from one king to his successor, it's always a difficult and a challenging and a delicate process. Now, these challenges are compounded when the deceased or departed leader was a legend, was an all-timer. After the passing of Moses, Joshua is stepping in to the biggest shoes of all time. Moses was the greatest leader that we or frankly, any people ever had. And now, Joshua must replace him and indeed accomplish feats that Moses himself was not successful in doing, namely the invasion of Canaan and its successful conquest. The first nine verses of the book of Joshua demonstrate how the Almighty positioned Joshua to succeed in the very grave challenges facing him. It begins with confronting the reality. And it was after the death of Moses, the servant of God, and God said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' attendant. It's interesting that in the very first verse, there's a clear distinction between Moshe, Moses, and his stature and Joshua. Moses is the servant of God. He's the man who served God with total, complete submission. Joshua, he's Moses' attendant. He was not as great as Moses. He was the moon to Moses' son. To properly navigate any challenge, you first have to face the brutal facts. And here, the brutal facts are that the successor, is not going to be as great as the predecessor, and that's acknowledged in the very first words of the book. After that fact is acknowledged, God lays out the mission to Joshua in verse 2. My servant Moses is dead, and now arise, cross this Jordan River, you and this entire people, into the land that I give to them. Moses indeed was superior to Joshua, but he's now dead, and Joshua you must move on, you must forge ahead, and you have to lead these people across the Jordan into the land. And God continues with a string of reassurances, of encouragement to Joshua, strengthening his resolve, comforting him, and giving him promises of divine backing. Every place that you tread, every spot on which you walk upon is yours. Joshua is given a tremendous promised by God that whatever he wants to conquer, whatever he wants can be annexed to the land 
of Israel. No man shall stand up to you as long as you live. You're not going to have to worry about any insurrection of any mutiny. Everyone's going to support you and no one's going to stand in your way. As I was with Moses, God tells Joshua, so too I will be with you. I will not fail you. I will not forsake you. And three times Joshua is told, be strong and courageous for you shall cause the people to inherit the land that I swore to their forefathers to assign to them. Be strong, be resolute, observe faithfully all the Torah that my servant Moses commanded you. Do not deviate from it, not right and not left, and you'll be successful in whatever you do. I command you, concludes God, be strong, be courageous, be resolute, don't be terrified, don't be dismayed. Hashem your God is with you in whatever you do. After this encouraging speech, Joshua instructs the people to prepare for in three days, on the 10th day of Nisan, exactly 33 days after Moses' passing, four days before Pesach, we're going to cross over the Jordan River. Like Moses before him, Joshua commissions spies to scatter the land. But unlike Moses, Moses sends 12 spies, a representative from each tribe. He only sends two, Pinchas, Phineas, and Caleb. Caleb, of course, was one of the people that went on the first mission. And they have a much narrower mandate. They're not going to scour the whole land. They're going to focus only on one region namely the fortified city of Jericho, which is going to be the first target. And also, they're not sent on a fact-finding mission. Rather, they're sent just to reassure the people that indeed the inhabitants of the land are trembling before them. They're terrified of the invading Jews. The two spies choose to visit the home of Rachav. She is a harlot and her home abuts the walls of the city. In fact, her window was part of the wall of the city. And the reason why they visited her is because her unique location and the fact that her premises were a place where lots of people visited and congregated, it made it a perfect spot if you wanted to gauge the public sentiment of the people regarding the potential invasion. So, Pinchas, Phineas, and Caleb, they secretly cross over the Jordan River from the East Bank to the West Bank. They visit the city of Jericho. They visit the home of Rachav, and they start evaluating the sentiments of the people. Meanwhile, the king of Jericho, one of the 31 kings of the land of Canaan, one of the kings of the seven tribes, the seven Canaanite tribes, he discovers that there's two spies staying by Rachav, and he sends a message that she better reveal their whereabouts. He wants to take them and interrogate them. And she, being a noble woman, she hid the spies under a pile of flax in her attic, in her loft, and she tells the king's messengers, yes, there were two people here, but they fled. They went back to the Jordan crossing, go over there, chase them, pursue them, catch them. And of course, they ran to try to pursue them. And that was futile because they were still with her. And she returned to the spies and she told them that she recognizes that the Jews are going to sweep through town soon. And she begs them to have her and her family be spared. And they agreed. They told her, to take her whole family, pile them into her home, 
and place a red string on her window. And on that condition, if everyone is inside the premises and the red string indicates that the people are there, they guarantee that her and her home and her household will be spared. She takes a rope. She lowers them down from the window outside the city and they scampered back to the camp. The spies return to Joshua and they tell him, In chapter 2, verse 24, God has delivered the whole land into our power. All the inhabitants of the land are quaking before us. And the postscript to this story is that ultimately this woman, Rachav, she repents from her sinful ways. She eventually becomes a righteous woman. And according to tradition, she actually marries Joshua And the Talmud makes the stunning comment that eight prophets, including the prophet Jeremiah, are counted among her descendants. With this mission completed, the plan to cross the Jordan with the entire nation is set into motion. Now, this day, the day of the crossing of the river, will go on to be arguably the most eventful day of our history. The nation travels to the banks of the Jordan, and Joshua instructs the Kohanim, that those who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, to dip their toe into the waters of the Jordan. And immediately, the instant that their feet touched the water, the river split. The upper waters began piling high vertically, and the lower waters continued to flow downstream, creating ample dry land for the nation to cross. And as long as the priests, as the Kohanim, holding the ark, were still in the riverbed, the waters remained split, and the nation began crossing over. Remember, this is a nation comprised of millions of people. They have spent the last 40 years in the wilderness, all in anticipation of finally entering the land, and now the time is upon us. As the people are crossing, Joshua commanded 12 men, one man from each tribe, to lift an enormous stone from the riverbed, and that's going to be erected into a great monument commemorating this fantastic miracle in the place where they are to encamp that evening, the city of Gilgal. But still a lot is still yet to happen on this day. Joshua takes 12 other stones and erects a monument in the Jordan, in the riverbed of the Jordan River, And that's going to stand testimony for this great miracle of the splitting of the river. In addition, as the Jews are crossing the river, Joshua tells them that the purpose of this campaign is to drive out the inhabitants of the land, to conquer the land of Canaan. If you don't agree, the waters will immediately descend upon you and me and drown us. Once all the final Jews have crossed over, to the west bank of the Jordan River, the waters wash back to the normal position, leaving the Kohanim bearing the ark on the east bank of the river 
and the river separating the two. And a second miracle occurred. The ark lifted those that lifted it. It hovered into the air and it magically crossed over the Jordan River, carrying with it the Kohanim who were ostensibly carrying it. They thought they were carrying it, but in reality, it was carrying them. Once the entire nation has been reunited on the west bank of the river, a flurry of activities happened. First, the nation makes the trek to Mount Gerizim and Mount Abel. This is a distance of 60 mil. The word mil is similar to the word mile. It's a little bit less than 60, around 40 miles. Think about the logistics of moving a nation of millions 40 miles. And remember, the land is quite densely populated with enemy combatants who are gearing up to wage war against the Jews. The Talmud tells us something quite surprising. How do the Jews manage to traverse this great distance without anyone stopping them? And the Talmud tells us that indeed people did try to stop them, but anyone who tried to impede them, anyone who stood in their way, was immediately stricken with diarrhea, and that, of course, ended their pursuit of the Jews. And as we're going to learn, the entirety of the conquest of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua is going to be miraculous. Once the Jews are assembled by these two mountains, which are located near Shechem, modern-day Nablus, it's in the center of the country, Joshua takes those 12 stones that were taken from the riverbed of the Jordan, and he assembles them into an altar on Mount Abel. And then he plasters them over with plaster, and he writes upon the altar the entire Torah very clearly in 70 languages. According to one opinion of the Talmud, the entirety of the Torah was written on top of the plaster, According to the second opinion in the Talmud, the Torah was written on the stones and then covered in plaster, and anyone who wanted to read it had to peel off the plaster to read it or to copy it. Again, a lot is happening on this one day. Now, there's a question. When it says that Joshua wrote the entire Torah, does that mean that it's really the entirety of the Torah from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Deuteronomy? That's the most common understanding. Others say, no, it wasn't the entirety of the Torah in 70 languages. If you think about it, five books in Hebrew, it taps out at 304,805 letters. It's a lot of writing in Hebrew. To do that in 70 languages would really be a laborious task, a very difficult task, a, uh, a task that would demand a lot of time and patience and obviously was miraculous regardless. But according to others, it wasn't the entirety of the Torah. It was a condensed version of the Torah. Uh, Perhaps it was the Ten Commandments. And those were all written on those stones that were assembled into an altar on Mount Abel. But the day was not nearly over. They also offered sacrifices on that altar, and they feasted, and they rejoiced. And then... The next part of the ceremony happened, and the Jews were divided into three groups. The first group were the elders of the tribe of Levi, 
and the Kohanim and the priests, and they stood between the two mountains together with the ark. And then on one mountain, Mount Gerizim, a green and luscious mountain, six tribes were encamped either on the mountain or near the mountain, the tribes of Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And the third group consisted of the other six tribes, Ruvain, Gad, Asher, Zebulon, Dan, and Naphtali. They were on the other mountain, Mount Abel, the same mountain upon which the altar was erected, a rocky and barren mountain. Now, the breakdown of who were to stand on which mountain was already told to the nation by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 11 to 13. And then if you read, if you read the continuation in Deuteronomy, Moses outlines what has to happen during this procedure. So you have half the nation on one mountain, Mount Gerizim. Half the nation on the other mountain, Mount Abel. In between, you have the elders and the ark. And then the elders and uh, the Kohanim made pronouncements of 11 parallel blessings and curses to both mountains. And both groups answered amen to the blessings and the curses. First, they would face Mount Reason and would proclaim a blessing. The first of the 11 blessings is, Blessed is the man who does not make a sculptured or molten image, someone who doesn't make an idol, abhorred by God, a craftsman handiwork, and sets it up in secret. That's what they announced. Blessed is someone who does not make an idol. And everyone responded, Amen. And then they turned to the other mountain, the Mount Abel, and they made the opposite proclamation. Cursed is the man who makes a sculptor molten image abhorred by God, a craftsman's handiwork, and sets it up in secret, and everyone again answered, Amen. This went on for 11 blessings and curses, culminating in the final one that encapsulates all of Torah. Blessed is he who upholds the Torah, Cursed is he who does not uphold the Torah. And again, the entire people responded, Amen. Thus, on the very first day of their settlement of the land, the entire people committed themselves via this oath, via this momentous and dramatic ceremony at these two mountains in the center of the land. They committed themselves to upholding the whole Torah. But the day was far from over. They dismantled the altar upon which the Torah was written in 70 languages, and they traveled back south to Gilgal. This is on the eastern end of Jericho, the location that would serve as the capital of the nation for the next 14 years. And Joshua re-erected the 12 stones upon which the Torah was written as a permanent monument in Gilgal. That 10th day of Nisan was arguably the most eventful day in our history. What has to happen four days later on the 14th day of Nisan? That's the day before Pesach. And on the day before Pesach, it's usually the busiest day in the Jewish calendar, even today, when we don't have a temple, we don't have a pilgrimage, and we don't have the Paschal offering. But they did have it. 
And the problem was that much of the nation was uncircumcised. And as we read in Exodus, if someone is uncircumcised, they are disqualified from consuming the carbon Pesach, the Paschal offering. And therefore, like Moses, 40 years prior during the actual Exodus, Joshua undertook the massive task of circumcising the entire nation to enable the Pesach offering. Why were the Jews indeed not circumcised during their 40 years in the desert? So there's two answers to that question. Either it was because of the unpredictability of travel. They never knew how long they're going to stay in a certain place. Maybe they'll need to move tomorrow. And the one thing you want to give a baby that's been recently circumcised is some days to recover, to recuperate. And therefore, because of the fact that their schedule was not well-defined, many people, we see that the tribe of Levi, for example, didn't withhold from circumcision, but many other Jews did not circumcise their babies because of that risk. Alternatively, the climate in which they were living was ill-suited for circumcision, and, and again, another reason why they thought it would be dangerous. And therefore, with the exception of the tribe of Levi, they weathered the storm and courageously circumcised their boys. But with the exception of Levi, all the boys born during the 40 years separating the Exodus from the invasion of Canaan, they were all uncircumcised. And Joshua oversaw a four-day circumcision convention to prepare them for Pesach. It's also important to note that with the exception of the first year in the wilderness, for the final 39 years in the wilderness, the nation did not do the Pesach offering. Now, it's important to stress that for adult males, circumcision is not a simple outpatient procedure. It severely weakens and incapacitates someone for a prolonged period. And it makes them quite vulnerable to attack. We all remember what happened in chapter 34 of Genesis to the people of Shechem when they were duped into circumcising all their males by Shimon and Levi, the sons of Jacob. And on day three of their recovery, Shimon and Levi entered the city and slew all the males that were in recovery. And now... The Jews are entering a hostile country with all kinds of enemies and the first order of business is to make almost all of their military age males incapacitated by circumcising them. This clearly demonstrates how frightened the Canaanites were of the Jewish people. And even though the Jewish people were vulnerable to attack, the Canaanites did not seize the opportunity and did not attack. That particular Pesach Passover was unique for several reasons. It was the first time that they had made the Pesach offering in 39 years. They were finally in the land of Canaan. And quite interestingly, they no longer ate the manna. The manna had stopped falling several weeks earlier on the day that Moses died. But that day's supply lasted until the 15th day of Nisan, until precisely 40 years to the day from the Exodus, from that day forward, they had to eat 
like normal humans, there was no more man of them. After Pesach, the stage was set for conquering the first major city, the gateway to Canaan, the city of Jericho. Jericho was surrounded by a thick, impregnable wall, and its entrances were completely sealed. No one left, and no one came in. And God outlined the plan of attack. And if we read it, it does not sound like a great military strategy, but it worked. Surround the city, encircle it once a day for six days. You have the army split in two, and they're sandwiching the ark, and seven kohanim, seven priests, blowing the shofar for the duration of this encirclement of the city. On day seven, which happened to be on Shabbos, they did the same thing, but not once. They did it seven times. This whole cavalcade of Jews, the army, one in the front, one in the back, and then in the middle you have the ark and the seven kohanim are surrounding the city seven times, blowing the shofar. And finally, when they did it and they completed these seven revolutions, the walls were set to collapse, and that's indeed what happened. Before the walls actually collapsed, Joshua issued a decree banning anyone from partaking in the booty of the city. This is the first city that's going to be conquered. It's going to be conquered in a miraculous way. It's like we're not doing it. It's God who's doing it, and therefore we don't deserve any of the spoils of victory. It should all go to God. Indeed, they did it, surround the city seven times. They finally did the last blast, and the walls collapsed. The warriors charged into the city, and the city was taken. All of its inhabitants were killed, with the exception of Rachav and her extended family that were harbored in her home as per the agreement. The spoils of the city were brought to the coffers of God, and the tabernacle and the city was burned to the ground. After the city was destroyed, Joshua warned against rebuilding it. And this is from Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. Joshua announced, Cursed before Hashem be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city of Jericho. He shall lay its foundations at the cost of his firstborn, and with his youngest he will set up its gates. If someone wants to rebuild the city of Jericho, they should know. They're, they've been forewarned. They'll lose their first-born child all the way till their final-born child, till the youngest child. Why is it so critical that Jericho is not rebuilt? So the Rambam explains the logic behind it, and that is because this was a tremendous miracle. And for hundreds of years, when people would walk in the area, They'd be reminded of the miracle. They'd see the walls of the city, these massive, impregnable walls sunken into the ground. They'd remember God and they'd be inspired with faith. And therefore, Joshua made this decree, made this warning against rebuilding the city. Indeed, in chapter 16 of the book of Kings, Kings 1 that is, verse 34, we read how five centuries later, Chiel, this is an individual from Bethel, he rebuilt Jericho. 
And when he laid the foundations of the city, his eldest son Aviram died. And when he finally set the gates of the city in place, Segov, his youngest son, died. And that was in accordance with the words of Joshua. The next city on the docket was Ai. This is a smaller but well-fortified city. And after examining it, a small squad of two to 3,000 soldiers were commissioned for the attack. But the result was a catastrophic failure. The people of Ai attacked, and they killed 36 Jews. None of them had died during the conquest of Jericho, and no one seemed to know what went wrong. Where was God? Why was God not defending us? So Joshua prays, why did this happen? Why were we unsuccessful in conquering Ai? Why did we suffer casualties. And God tells him, well, someone transgressed the oath and embezzled booty from the spoils of Jericho. And until that person is punished, I will not be with you and you will lose your battles. So Joshua asks God, okay, tell me the identity of the perpetrator and I'll punish him and we'll move on. And God responds, what am I, a snitch? What am I, an informer? Go find out on your own. And indeed, Joshua did. He made a lottery and he prophetically determined the guilty party, an individual named Achan, and he executed him. Afterwards, a second attempt at I was launched. This time, it would not be totally miraculous and therefore the booty of the city would be fair game. And the plan This one seems like a much more rigorous military strategy. The plan was to take the army and split into two parties. A small party attacking from the front of the city, but really it was bait to get the people to get out of their defenses. And then a second large 30,000 warrior unit attacking the city from the rear after the city is emptied of its soldiers. And the plan worked to perfection. The city of Ai, drunk with their earlier successes, they seized the bait and they heavily pursued the small force in the front of the city. And once the city was devoid of its defenders, Joshua gave the sign. He held his spear up in the air and the other force attacked the city from its rear and they swiftly torched it. And the pursuing people from I, they turn around and they see their beloved city ablaze and they were totally demoralized. And Joshua made a counteroffensive and they were encircled and destroyed, 12,000 dead of the enemies and none of the Jews. And the king of I was hung until nightfall and then buried under a pile of rubble at the entrance of the city. Things are going swimmingly for the conquest of Canaan. Now, after seeing what had happened to the cities of Jericho and Ai, the rest of the kings of the Canaanites realized that they needed to unite into one fighting coalition to be able to resist the assault of this new juggernaut. Now, one group, a Chivite tribe called the Givonim or the Gibbonites, they came up with an elaborate ploy to survive. They masqueraded as foreigners who were traveling a great distance. 
They doctored their clothings. They made their donkeys look like they were old. They put patches on their shoes. They came with old, stale, dry bread. And they came to Joshua and to the Jews. And they said, oh, we come from a great distance and we want peace with you. The Jews were suspicious. How do I really know that you're foreigners? Maybe you are indeed Canaanites. And they lied and said, no, we, we, we want to be your servants. We hold, we heard about all the miracles of the Exodus and the conquest of the East Bank. And essentially they duped the Jews into signing an agreement. Joshua did not seek the approval of God. And he signed the treaty and only later on was the ruse discovered. And then, of course, you have a question. This was an agreement reached via deception. Is it valid or is it not valid? Joshua decided to indeed uphold the agreement, but to force the Gibbonites into the lowest strata of society. He made them water carriers and woodchoppers. And in the future, several hundred years later, King David is going to decree that these Gibbonites are forever disqualified to convert to Judaism because of their coarse and violent nature. Meanwhile, a coalition of five Amorite kings joined forces to attack the Gibbonites. Why? They wanted to deter any other Canaanites from signing a separate peace with the Jews. So now the Gibbonites are being attacked. And Joshua, in keeping with his oath, the one that was fraudulently agreed upon, Joshua defended the Gibbonites and he attacked the five Amorite kings and he won the battle with supernatural means. Joshua descended from Gilgal, which was, like we said earlier, the place where the encampment of the Jews was. And he assisted the Gibbonites via conventional means of warfare. He pulled the sword and the Almighty created a miraculous meteor shower or hailstones that descended upon the Amorites, the Canaanites, and killed even more people than were killed by sword. Now that day was Friday. And Joshua was worried that the battle may not end in time for Shabbos. So he promptly commanded the sun to freeze in place. And in a miracle that we remember and invoke quite often, the sun froze in place and the moon froze in place. And for 36 hours, they didn't move until the victory was complete. The five Amoritines who instigated the battle, they were discovered in a cave. This was the middle of the battle. So Joshua instructed that they place large stones at the entrance of the cave and they keep him trapped there and mop up the rest of the enemies. We'll deal with the kings once the battle is over. After the battle was over, Joshua instructed that the cave be opened and the five kings were extracted. They were brought to the camp at Gilgal and Joshua had his officers place their feet on the necks of the king 
to show them, to give them inspiration that you could win, you could overcome, that these Canaanite kings are going to be subjugated to us. He had them killed. He hung them on gallows before nightfall. Joshua ordered that their bodies be taken down, that these corpses be put back again in the cave, that the huge stones be permanently placed at the entrance of the cave as a monument of the great miracles that happened in this battle. And the conquest continued. They went from city to city, beginning in the south. They conquered Makeda and Livna and Lachish and Gezer and Eglon and Hebron and Divra. And again, the northern kingdoms united. They had strong fortified cities, but they banded together and they tried to attack the Jews in open warfare. And though they had chariots and the Israelites, the Jews only had infantry, the Jews won miraculously and resoundingly. The city of Chatzor was burnt down to the ground, but other cities were left intact. The vast majority of the land of Canaan was conquered, the north, the south, all the border areas. But there were still pockets of unconquered, uncaptured Canaanite strongholds, particularly in the center of the country. Why indeed were they not conquered? And the answer is that Joshua was told that he would live until the conquest and the division and the distribution of the land was completed. In addition, he knew that for the duration of his life, the Jews will not sin. And therefore, Joshua says, I want to prolong my life in order to prolong the period in which the Jews are not going to sin. And therefore, I'm going to delay the final conquest. I'm going to try to prolong the conquest in order to prolong the period where the Jews are not going to sin. Yet, Joshua made a mistake. God told him to go conquer. And because he purposefully delayed the complete conquest, his life was shortened by 10 years. He was supposed to live to 120 like Moses before him, but Joshua is going to pass away at the age of 110. And though Joshua conquered most of the land and all 31 kings were killed, there were still large swaths of land that were occupied by various Canaanite tribes. Now from chapter 12 of the book of Joshua all the way to the end of the book in chapter 24, we read about the next component of Joshua's responsibilities, the division and the apportioning of the land to the tribes. Every tribe is given, this is all done via a lottery, it's given a portion in the land and how that's all divided up, not just on a tribe level, but all the way down to a family level. Uh, some uh, important events that happened, Caleb gets the city of Hebron that was promised to him by Moses for his uh, valiant actions during the episode of the spies in the book of Numbers. The daughters of Tzlafchad, they get their father's portion. There are six cities which are apportioned as permanent cities of refuge for accidental murderers. The tribe of Levi does not get a contiguous portion, but they have 42 cities which are scattered throughout the entire land. Joseph's bones are buried in the city of Shechem, as was promised to him by Jacob. And after the division of the land has concluded after seven years of division, the two and a half tribes 
who were to permanently dwell on the east bank, they said goodbye and they returned home. The Talmud in the book of Nadarim, page 22b, tells us that had the Jewish people not sinned, all we would have in our Bible is six books. The five books of Moses, the five books of the Torah, and the book of Joshua, because the book of Joshua contains the places, the arrangements of the cities and the tribes in the land. The reason why we have the rest of the books of the prophets and the writings, it's all because the Jewish people did indeed sin, and therefore the rebuke that they received as a result of their behavior was recorded for posterity and became part of the corpus of the Tanakh. After the death of Joshua, the period of the judges began, and the people were inspired to finally complete the conquest of the land that's dealt with in chapter 1 of the book of Judges. Uh, There's one notable city, the city of Bezek, and it's king Adoni Bezek, and there is a little bit of a gory description of what they did to him. His policy was, his enemies, he would cut off their thumbs and their big toes, and they did to him exactly what he did to his enemies. They cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Like Moses, his teacher before him, Joshua convened the nation for a final message before he passed. And he begins his message in chapter 24 of the book of Joshua by recounting a brief history of the Jewish people, beginning with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the descent to Egypt and the miraculous exodus and the conquests of Moses and the conquests of Joshua and the settlement of the land. And then he shares with the people his parting message. And now, this is verse 14 of chapter 24. And now, fear Hashem and serve him with wholeheartedness and truth. Remove the gods of your forefathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. And serve Hashem. If it is evil in your eyes to serve Hashem, choose today whom you will serve. The gods of your forefathers served across the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me, my house, we will serve Hashem. He's given them a choice. You have the ancient pagan gods of Abraham's antecedents. You have the pagan gods of your neighbors here, the local inhabitants in Canaan. But me and my house, we will serve Hashem. And the nation responds, no, we would never do that. Hashem took us out of Egypt. And Joshua responds to them, make sure that you don't blunder because God is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellious sins or your transgressions. If you forsake him and you serve foreign pagan gods, he will turn and act harshly towards you and destroy you after having done good with you. And the people reassure Joshua, no, we will serve only Hashem. And Joshua reminds them the implications of that. You bear witness upon yourselves that you have chosen God You've chosen Hashem to serve him. And they respond, we are witnesses. Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and he set down decrees and laws for them in Shechem. He wrote 
the book of Joshua. And it was after these events that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Hashem, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him in Timna Serach, in the Mount of Ephraim, which is north of Mount Gosh. During Joshua's lifetime, indeed, the people remained resolutely and unflinchingly committed to Torah and to the Almighty after his passing, once the era of the judges began, that was not always so.